This is Danny and Gallant on 710 ESPN Seattle. Streaming nationwide on the 710 Sports app and 710sports.com. Now here are your hosts, Danny O'Neill and Paul Gallant. A lot of defensemen, not very many high-priced veterans, a relative almost non-existence of trades, and one all-important homestand for your baseball team. That is your stories, storylines heading into today. Good morning. It's Danny and Gallant. It is Thursday, July 22nd. Kraken have a roster, and the Mariners have an opportunity over the next week, Paul. And we don't have Mike Greenberg talking over us. And we appreciate y'all coming back this morning, if you did, because that was absolutely terrible and unacceptable. Anywho, yes, Danny, there is a roster of hockey players in this city, and that's wonderful, I am not sure, though, what to get excited about because I talked with some of my hockey people, and this is right now a very bare-bones roster where more moves can be made later today. 10 o'clock is when they can start announcing those trades. There's basically this, you can't make any move happen, but I think like with the NFL, some of these moves maybe already are happening, and one of the guys that we're going to talk to a little bit later has been breaking everything, so maybe we'll get a little bit more information on that at 7.45 when Frank Saravelli joins us from the Daily Faceoff. But this is this is a team that's got a lot of good defenders, has very few scoring options, and is taking a flyer on a goalie who had a pretty good first season. In- that was That's Chris Dereger, right? Right. And then we got two more goalies, one of whom is going to start in AAA. They, they have a well run. They did not choose the high-priced guys. Correct. Right? They did not take Carey Price, who is older and has some health concerns. They, 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 they did not go out and get, okay, we're going to get the best player regardless of contract. They, they kept an eye toward salary space, salary cap space. We'll find out exactly what that means. For, for the Mariners, they return home after a good start, a good start to the second half of the season, the post-All-Star break. They go 3-2 and two on a road trip. They have a bullpen start yesterday, and I, I think we're all sick of the bullpen start. Yeah. I think we've all seen what to expect from the bullpen start. The Mariners are now one in eight in bullpen starts, but don't don't lose sight of what is most important. And that's not what happened yesterday. It's what happens over the next week. They've got seven games: four games against the A's, three games against the Astros. If if they're going to make the playoffs, if they're going to make the playoffs, they they've got to win four of these seven games, right? Yeah. Where are those four wins most likely to come? I think that. Any victories are most likely to come against Oakland with the way that Houston hits. Houston, Houston's clobbering the ball. Houston's Houston right now is the best hitting team in baseball yeah. by pretty much every measurement that you have. You also have your best pitchers. You don't have to worry about a bullpen start coming in these four games against the A's. Right. You you've got you've got your best lineup. You're going to see Gilbert. You're going to see Kikuchi. You're you're going to absolutely Flexen. throw throw out Chris Flexen and then Marco Gonzalez is the fourth. You got you got your best shot against the A's, but for you for the Mariners to be a serious playoff team because they got to catch a lot of people. Yeah, for them to be a serious playoff team, I, they're going to have to catch either the A's or the Astros. I'm I'm not sure if I see a, a path to doing that if if they don't have a winning record on this homestand. I'm with you. The only other route is that a team like New York and Tampa Bay completely falls off and maybe gives the opportunity for two teams to get that wild card spot coming out of the American League West. Right now, I would say that you do have a better chance at catching an Oakland team. And 
you get it that started right now. But this is a really interesting stretch for the Mariners because they will be facing these two teams a lot. They didn't play the Astros a whole lot in the first half of the year, and they played the A's a little bit, but not that much either. They are, if I'm not mistaken, among eight series that they will have against those two teams the rest of the way. It, it's incredibly exciting. I'm pumped for this season, for this this homestand to start. I'm excited for the games. I think it's a huge opportunity. I feel good about how the Mariners are playing. The Mariners are playing good baseball. Even yesterday, Keenan Middleton got roughed up in the first, but you take out what he did, and, and the Mariners... Only one the run Mariners the rest of the way. Yeah, the, the the Mariners acquitted themselves really well. They had a, a, a rookie that they'd called up from Tacoma who who didn't get the start they wanted to kind of soften the landing. That strategy didn't pan out for them. But I I feel really good about the baseball the Mariners are playing. I'm excited to see what they do. I'm a little nervous. I mean, I I, I feel like this is that spot where okay, you've you've been doing all sorts of really impressive things for a while, but. You know, doing it against the Angels or the Rays or the or or the Yankees or all these other teams like this is it's almost as if you've just had a series of dress rehearsals and you're feeling pretty good, but you're still nervous about going up against the real teams. And these are the real challenges for them the rest of the way. And you know what? I mean, for what it's worth, they did start things off decently against those two teams. But those are, I think, two squads that have been there and done that where the Mariners have not. And I think that little veteran savvy that they might have as a leg up on on Seattle right now both Houston and Oakland that is going to be interesting to see what kind of a gap that creates between the two of them the talent gap at the very least in Houston it's it's different look Houston's clobbering the baseball and Jerry Depoto has always been very clear we'll talk to the Mariners general manager coming up at 8 30 Jerry's always been very clear part of the when they took the step back on rebuilding was the idea that we'll be coming into our prime as a team as Houston's probably leaving its window of opportunity. Now, things things have changed for Houston since then. I mean, they've had lots, I mean, not just the concert, but they don't, they have a different GM. Like, there's all sorts of things that have changed for them. But that idea of, this is the team you're you're trying to chase down, though. Not just this season, but in the, in the bigger picture. And the Mariners team right now with Cal Raleigh and Jared Kelnick up is more of, you have more of the nucleus of the players that you think are going to be here when you are able to catch them. This is this is going to be a great opportunity. The four games against the A's, I I've, I always like playing the A's. It's they they can be a frustrating opponent because they get so much attention for how much they do with with fewer resources. They've got the kind of they're they're one of the only teams that still wears white shoes, which I think makes them look slow. Like really, the, the, I think white shoes make you look faster. I think black yeah, shoes no, make you look no, like you're in the nineteen fifties. I, I I think their I think their white shoes make them them look a little bit slower, but they've got a they've got a fun team. You're good. This is it's a great. It's not even a measuring stick. The Mariners can look in the mirror and feel that they're a good team, and these are the sort of exciting opportunities that you get as a good team, which is a four game series toward the end of July with the trade deadline bearing down. Luis Torrens, among other guys, is absolutely on fire. Mitch Haniger's been clobbering the baseball. Let's go. How do you think two of the guys that you mentioned along that will do? And I'm talking about both Cal Raleigh and Jared Kelnick because, you know, this is really for Kelnick. This is this is the, hey, how much did you really learn in the minor leagues? Because now you're going to be playing in maybe what is as close to a playoff scenario for you this coming season. Have you found a way to deal with your failures? And for Cal Raleigh, too, I mean, this is just clearly a big step up. 
as far as who he's going up against too to go from the Angels and the Rockies to these two teams. Kelnick is going to eventually get hot. That's how I look at it. Kelnick is due to get on a tear. I Kelnick's had the growing pains. If if it doesn't happen now, it's going to happen. He's an incredibly talented player who I don't. It's a question of when, not if, for, for him with me. I, I I think it's a question of of when and not if he gets on a tear, and I can't wait to see that happen. Mm. Watching Cal Raleigh is a bigger player, more muscular. He's a bigger dude than I thought. It, and watching the, him get his first major league hit and key that comeback against the Rockies was awesome. Like, it's really cool. So I, I'm not sure. I don't know if they're ready to compete. If they're not, there's no shame in that. There's no shame if, if the Mariners aren't able to have a 4-3 and three record over a homestand against two teams that people thought were miles ahead of them when the season started. But I'm excited to see where they stack up because I think so far we've seen a Mariners team that's greater than the sum of its parts. The way you're describing it makes it sound like there's no way that they're going to be able to disappoint you over this seven-game stretch. I think that's a fair assessment of this season, Paul. Like, I, I, I really do. Like, am I going to be bummed if they don't make the playoffs? Yeah, I'll be bummed. I think we've seen a lot of really great things from this team. And and I think if you're being, if you're an objective observer, if you're a reasonable person, and we'll talk a little bit about that later, if you're a reasonable person, you have to be really, There's there's been nothing but good signs this year about the overall direction that this team is headed. Would you take three of four? If they don't get four or three, I mean, we, we are hoping that they take one of these two series and it starts with four against Oakland. If they take three of four, would that be acceptable? Because you're still hanging around, and you're still probably keeping yourself just close enough to that wild card contention. If we're talking about legitimate, where you've got a shot, and you can think about, hey, th- there's a decent chance. There, we're a reasonable playoff contender. There's 10 teams in the American League that have winning records, right? Yeah. I mean, the Mariners have to pass a lot of people. If they go three and four, I think it's significantly different than a... Right. If you go three and four, hey, how do you feel about the trade deadline? And if you are four and three, maybe that one game would make that much of a difference with the trade deadline coming up on July 31st. It's Danny and Gallant. Let's get to front page news. This this is the front page. Today's top two stories and why they matter. Every morning at 710, get what you need to know to start your day right now. All right, so, guys, it's front page news time. And in the front page news, we saw a massive contract extension for 49ers linebacker Fred Warner. Five years, $95.25 million, about 40 of it guaranteed. There's, of course, funny money. There's voidable years and all that stuff, too. But it makes Fred Warner, at least on average, the highest paid linebacker in the NFL, leaping that of, Bobby Wagner's contract and look he's young he can cover he has played in I believe just about every single game he potentially could play in he's playing 95% of snaps for San Francisco he's a really talented player I am surprised though Danny that a middle linebacker is getting this kind of contract (laughs) you I just I just like for the record I think your attitudes on linebacker pay are hilarious to me I, I just I, I I I enjoy you don't you don't think middle linebackers should be paid as much as they are. No, I I, I think safeties are a more important position. I really do. I know, okay. but I do. I and I just look at the impact that Bobby Wagner had last year, and I don't think it was worth eighteen million dollars. 
So if that's the case, and Jamal Adams were to negotiate with you and say, I want more than these guys, you'd be like, well, those guys are overpaid, so I'm not going to... They're, they're not a proper well, benchmark, right? If you're putting me if you're putting me into that box, then I'm going to operate in a different manner, am I not? I'm saying True. right now, if I'm Jamal Adams, and I talked about this yesterday, when because we found this out basically as our show was ending yesterday, the Fred Warner contract. If I'm Jamal Adams, I'm going to ask for Fred Warner money, because I'm going to say, well, I'm a jack-of-all-trades legend <laughs> and you should pay me as such and if i'm the seahawks i guess the question would be all right well he's going to want more than justin simmons are we willing to meet him halfway between justin simmons and fred warner in this yes. hypothetical yeah yeah i am and you know yes. what that's good if that's the case I, I i i do not have a hard time stomaching that remember that bobby wagner's contract is one that you can get yourself out of if you so choose to after i believe this season I just want to make the overall observation. Paul is not alone in this, in the feeling about middle linebacker salaries. One of two things is true. Either NFL GMs, as a collective and as an industry, overpay that position. Because, I mean, I can go back to Brian Urlacher. Every year when people go through, why do you pay him that much? He doesn't do this. He doesn't do that. Middle linebackers make more than outside linebackers. Bobby Wagner is fairly paid as one of the best middle linebackers in the league. And whenever you say, okay, tell me who's better than him, who's, who's a better middle linebacker than him? Maybe Fred Werner. Fred, Fred Werner's a pretty good player. But now I guarantee in two years, people are going to be saying Fred Werner's overpaid. So either all of the NFL GMs are wrong, the industry is off entirely, which is possible, or we don't know how to properly measure the impact of middle linebackers. And just citing their tackles and saying, I, I, I expect more splash plays from it. One of those two things is true in general. There's a select few who I can understand why you would pay them a lot. But I do think that it's strange that the market for this position has gotten so out of whack compared to that of safety, right? Because most players are going no, to be paid people, based off of a certain pe- amount. That's no, been people, before. people thought Ray Lewis was overpaid. People, there, there was a period of like three years when people talked about Ray Lewis being the most overpaid player in football. This is this has been an this has been an enduring and enduring discussion among NFL examiners, and I I, something's off. Either the observers or the GMs. The front page. The expansion draft, Danny. How'd you like that? Happened. My favorite part involved Marshawn Lynch. Look, Brandon Tanev is going to be a fan favorite. I think you saw him. He's got a goofy headshot. Uh, he made fun. It said, it looks like I saw a ghost. He was enjoyable. My favorite moment was still when Marshawn Lynch, when Marshawn Lynch, he asked for an assist on some pronunciation. The Seattle Kraken select from the Asheville Predators. Marshawn, take it away. You see, so uh, with the, f- this the first pick, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, with the first pick, we're going with the boy, boy, Cali, though. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yup, Cali Yarncrow. Cali Yarncrow. That was a really smooth way to ask for an assist. Marshawn's the best. You know, they did our guy Sean Kemp wrong, though. What was up with that tiny little shirt that they put on him? Come on, guys. That's not cool. It's Sean Kemp, the rain man. It's possible that Sean told them what size he was, and it wasn't what size he actually is. Well, I hope that's not the case, but goodness gracious, they gave him like a medium. Actually, I don't know if he would have fit into a medium. I've got a really funny story about a football coach and sizing. I'll, I'll debate whether or not I'm going to tell it. Oh, no, that's, that's the kind of tease that you got to pay off. It's Danny and Gallant. That is front page news. Let's get in the car ride. 
John Clayton's Morning Drive with Danny and Gallant. It's a four-way battle and there's only going to be three spots. Somebody has to go. The first and final word on everything, everything NFL, NFL from the professor John Clayton. John Clayton. They scored 30 points a game. They're the best running team in football. It's John Clayton's Morning Drive with Danny, Danny and Gallant. Professor, we just saw a massive deal given to Fred Warner. Five years, $95.225 million. You are such an expert when it comes to breaking these contracts down. I am surprised that a middle linebacker gets this kind of money, though it is only a slightly north figure as far as average per year salary over Bobby Wagner. Yeah, but of course, I mean, that's and Darius Leonard is going to get more than uh, Warner's going to get. Wow. Because he's got more sacks, more tackles, everything else. So he's probably going to get 19.5 a year. But that just barely tops the contract that Von Miller signed six years ago. Because Von Miller, you know, who's an outside linebacker in a 3-4 defense, ended up getting the uh, $19.1 million a year. So I guess that's just the price of doing business. And I, I, I don't understand when you say safeties should get more than middle linebackers because let's put it this way. I've been voting in the Hall of Fame since 88 and safeties are valuable, but they're not the highest paid guys. And they're also not the guys that get in to the Hall of Fame before uh, middle linebackers or linebackers. Why, why do you think that is? Because that's the position. I mean, you're, if you're a safety, you're playing uh, you know, 15, 10 yards or whatever off the line of scrimmage. Middle linebackers are right behind the defensive lineman. I mean, they're there. I was like, compare the tackles of safeties compared to middle linebackers. Compare, And also, if you're going to be a middle linebacker, particularly, and again, remember, only half the league, less than half the league has four, three defenses. But uh, in the end, I mean, the middle linebacker is the one who calls the plays and gets everybody adjusted as far as uh, what goes on. I mean, they're pretty much the bosses of the defense because they get everybody aligned. So it's it's not close. I mean, again, safeties, that's why, you know, $15.25 million right now is Justin Simmons. And you would figure that the Seahawks are offering about $16 million to Jamal Adams. And, you know, but he's, he shouldn't get more than a middle linebacker. A couple of people are texting in the green dots should be paid for being the green dots. And you just you just highlighted that. But yeah. you, you, also, you also brought up the, the, the tackle numbers. Should, should a guy be punished because he's further away from the line of scrimmage? And, and how important it's, should those tackle numbers be? Well, why would he be punished? I mean, if, if, if you're making the highest paid safety numbers, I mean, you know, go back to when Earl Thomas was trying to do his second deal with the team. I mean, he wanted to be the highest paid defensive player in the league. And they said, no. We're not doing that. I mean, a safety plays off the line of scrimmage. It's not close. And so, I mean, sure, he can make some interceptions, but sometimes, you know, the safeties don't get picked on or don't get the, the, the major plays. The five, you know, the five major positions, you know, still aren't uh, going to not include safeties as far as pay. And so, in the end, safeties should not get more than middle linebackers. John K.J. Wright said earlier this week, that that the door has not closed on Seattle. What what's the status of things? Like, is is he waiting on the team? Is the team waiting on him? What what do you think the status is? Well, there? it's kind of like Melvin Ingram and all the other players right now, just waiting for the right opportunity and the right contract. And you know, the the I'm sure part of part of the problem is is that uh, you know if they were talking numbers early, KJ probably wasn't fond of them. You know, because again, I still go back 
to May 2nd, you know, that's the last day of unrestricted free agency. And since then, there's only been seven or eight players who got more than $3 million a year. And so the market, you know, maybe $3 million, and maybe KJ wasn't happy with that. Now he's got to be happy with it. I mean, I, we haven't got the official Melvin Ingram contract yet. They say it's one year four, but you know how that always goes. They always, uh, the agent will tell the reporter who's breaking the story. He's like, oh, yeah, it's going to be $4 million, and it turns out to be three. So it's like, uh, <clears throat> but uh, I know that because, you know, the, he was on uh, Sirius with Kirk Morrison, who I had on uh, Schooled with a Professor. Uh, we started that last night. And so, uh, you know, it's it's one where it's just kind of the waiting game. And also, too, it's, I think he also realizes it may go into training camp waiting to see whether there's an injury or everything else. I mean, if you're going to be K.J. Wright, part of the problem is he's in a 4-3 defense. And if there's only 14 or 15 in the league and most of the teams have their outside linebackers, then, uh, you know, that's it's going to be a waiting game. So it's just right now a waiting game to see what K.J. is going to be able to do. Professor, how surprised were you? Jerry Jones had an availability yesterday, and he admitted that he screwed things up with Jimmy Johnson. I was shocked that he actually was able to come to that admission because you do wonder what happens to those 90s Cowboys if it's Jimmy Johnson that's still in charge of them after those first two titles they won. Yeah, and I still remember being in Phoenix, I think it was, for an owner's meeting, and we had a whole bunch of media sitting around Jerry Jones, and one night he was talking uh, you know, with a cocktail or so over the <laughs> idea that, uh, hey, what about the idea of me bringing Barry Switzer as the head coach? And we all looked at him as like, uh, have you had too many of those cocktails? Or <laughs> what? And, of course, obviously he didn't. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm just glad that he did admit he made a major mistake. And he's continued that mistake for so many years because you notice, I mean, has Jimmy Johnson been inducted into the Cowboys Hall of Fame? It's like, no, I don't think so. Um, and it's like, uh, I mean, here's the guy who, you know, he, he's, you know, he and uh, Tom Landry were the greatest coaches in Dallas Cowboy history. And, of course, Jimmy was so unique because not only was he a great coach, but he also became a great general manager. I mean, he changed the structure of that team to a point that that team was absolutely loaded in a 4-3 defense, had Troy Aikman at quarterback. I mean, had so many great players. And also, I mean, he created the, uh, you know, the trade uh, chart that uh, worked out so well that you you know what you can get in trade value. So it's like I'm glad he finally admitted he made a mistake. I was thought it was interesting last week. Stephen Jones, his son, admitted he made they made a mistake by not getting a deal done last year with Dak Prescott because it probably cost him an extra five million dollars a year for four years. Professor, we always appreciate the updates and the time and the bit of perspective. We look forward to catching up with you tomorrow to wrap up the Thanks, week. John. Okay, sounds good. Thanks. That is the Professor John Clayton. You can hear him this afternoon with Wyman and Bob. Well, Jamal Adams does have a benchmark he can point to. It's not a guy that plays his position, but it's absolutely what he's going to be negotiating off of. We'll explain why next. You are listening to Danny and Gallant on 710 ESPN Seattle. Now, here are your hosts, Danny O'Neill and Paul Gallant. We talked about this a little bit earlier. Danny and Gallant, 710 ESPN Seattle. Danny is abused by my anti-linebackers getting paid take. It's, I, I don't, I'm not saying that, that you're wrong. I'm saying it, it dovetails into what is a common perception. You're not the only person that thinks that Bobby Wagner's overpaid. But what I, and I've, this has been a trait for 20 years in which people will always say that the guy that's identified as the best linebacker in the game, the people. People will look at him and say he doesn't make enough plays to justify his salary. So something doesn't add up there because 
generally, there are mistakes that are made in contracts. But this is one that is position-specific, that endures beyond single individual players, that gets to the point where either we don't know how to measure the impact of middle linebackers, or there is an industry inefficiency. It's one of those two things. I think it's the latter. And I, I say it's the latter because Bobby Wagner is a good player, and Bobby Wagner a couple of years ago was the best linebacker in the NFL. You can make a case for Fred Warner right now. The professor laid out Darius Leonard in Indianapolis. There's like four or five awesome linebackers that play middle linebacker in the league. I just find it interesting that that position, the guys who are at the top of that position versus any other position on defense outside of pass rusher, are put on this pedestal in the way that they are. And I would point to, from my time in Houston, the Texans signed two linebackers in Bernardrick McKinney and Zach Cunningham, both of whom were second-round picks, and they were signed to contracts that they were nowhere close to being worth, just given what they did. But I felt like because of the average positional value that most linebackers get, they were brought up, even though that their talent and their skill set did not merit it. So that's part of my look at the middle linebacker position, for sure. In Seattle, we don't have a question about how much linebackers are going to get paid. I guess there's KJ Wright, but that's really more of, I I think, a question of age and opportunity at this point. There is a question about your your starting strong safety and what he is going to want as a top of his position pay grade, where he's probably, I mean, I think the first thing both of us thought when we saw Fred Werner's contract is that Bobby's probably going to say, like, hey, I'm worth that. Yep. I'm sorry, Jamal Adams is going to say, hey, I'm worth that. Bobby might too. That's the other part about this. And as he gets closer to the end of his contract, I don't know if that becomes an issue perhaps on the horizon. But yeah, you're right. If you're Jamal Adams, you should be saying in any negotiations, I am a jack-of-all-trades, front-seven player. I don't play a position. Yeah, you're trying to make me a safety. You're trying to pay me Justin Simmons money. He's the highest-paid safety in the NFL. He got four years, $61 million earlier this offseason. I think it was in March. I am somebody who can get sacks, who can cover tight ends. Of course, he's not being asked to cover wide receivers. We've seen how that works, whether it was in the second game against New England or it was in that one spot against Stephon Diggs, which I think is unfair. But he, his role is to be all over the field in like the front seven yards of the defense, essentially. And I, I think one big reservation that a lot of people have with the idea of paying Adams maybe more or in the same realm as a linebacker or or more than Justin Simmons is that he's not a cover safety. And I think that's kind of unfair. I feel like those people don't really grasp the role that Jamal Adams plays for this team. You're not asking Jamal Adams to be a coverage safety. You're asking Jamal Adams to do everything that he possibly can as far as pursuit and creating havoc in that area close to the line of scrimmage. And because of his speed and strength and toughness, he is remarkably adept even though he is essentially a very fleet, undersized linebacker with the way that he plays. This is like arguing real estate, though. Like, you can tell me all of the things and the reasons why the house that you're trying to sell me is better than the house that's on the beachfront and all of the different things and how close it is and it's more convenient and it's not located there. And I'm still going to come back and say, I'm not going to pay as much for this house because it's not at the oceanfront. Mm. It's the Real estate matters. Yeah. And... Look, that all everything you said is true, and I don't think Jamal Adams should be penalized for what he doesn't do, given how many things he does do well. And what all you all you need to show me for Jamal Adams' worth is that play where he ran down Cam Akers from the backside. Right. 
where on well, a play that is the, a play that is designed in which they say you don't have to worry about this guy because he's out of the play from the snap. He ran his way down to save a touchdown doing that. It's still about real estate. It's about his location. Safeties don't make as much as, as middle linebackers. So if you say split the difference between where Fred Warner and Justin Simmons are, okay, we can talk about that. But it's not – Vaughn Miller's contract doesn't have anything to do with how much Jamal Adams is going to make because they play different positions. Wouldn't that make you mad if you're in Jamal Adams' shoes? Yes, oh, and you're absolutely. Right. You're, you're, it would make me furious. It would make me absolutely furious. The way you laid it out is, is exactly right. But essentially, if that's something you're bringing up in contract negotiations, you're essentially like playing – the way it is by Bruce Hornsby in the range yes, with the completely. piano medley, hundred percent. Yeah, and you don't and you don't ever say it. And I'd be polite enough not to say it to Jamal. But what I do in the back of my mind is thinking that's cute. I understand your logic, but I'm not going to offer you that. So we're just going to wait it out here. And eventually, you're going to take the offer that I'm offering because your options are to play out one year and then become a free agent. Maybe if I don't franchise tag you, you're you're going to take what I give you, Jamal Adams earlier this offseason said that he doesn't classify himself as a safety. He classifies himself as a defensive weapon. Here's Jamal. Well, I just I classify myself as a playmaker. You know what I mean? I can play I can I can play anything you need me to do. Um any, I mean any position really and and you know I, I don't really classify myself just as a safety. You know, I, I I classify myself as a defensive weapon. You know what I mean? And so I'm just going to continue to play my ball, continue to do what they asked me to do, continue to learn, and um, that's all I can do. He's likely going to look for something north of, well north of what Justin Simmons got, and perhaps in the same realm as what Fred Warner just got, which is five years and $95.5 million. Is there anything that he can do, anything that he can say, that you think could potentially shift the Seahawks from essentially just going back to the drawing board and, and saying, we love you, Jamal, but this is the market? Is there anything that they can say here? Because I think in Adam's case, I would just point out, I am different. I am different than all these other guys that you are putting in this safety box. And I will say, so was Earl Thomas, and so was Cam Chancellor. Uh, And this is the way we paid him. If he brings up as a counterpoint, well, look what your defense was without either of those guys. Look what your defense is whenever any of our safeties are not healthy. This defense needs safeties. And, I mean, if you don't want to respect me the way that I am as a safety, then where is that going to get you as a defense? Jamal, I love you. I do not think you want to base your pay on the argument of how good the defense overall is and compare it to that 2013 team. Because I think if we get it and you're asking me where we would be without you, that's a very fair point. But if it's, hey, I do more for this defense than those guys did oh, for that defense, I, I, I don't think I'm going to tell you that that, argument, that, def- right? that that defense was significantly different than this one in terms of its production. And, and that's where I would bring out a binder with statistics and say, Earl Thomas and, and Camp Chancellor deserve reparations. They need to get their due for what they weren't paid. Earl Thomas, remember when he flicked you guys off? Camp Chancellor, you remember what happened? That wasn't cool, guys. Come on. You gotta be you gotta be cool to your safeties. <laughs> we love you, Jamal. And we totally love the competitive fire you've brung to this negotiation. But the position is the position, and it's a real estate game. And we're gonna make you the highest paid player at your position, just like we've done for other guys when it comes to their position. And we don't change that because of how special any one player is because we've got a lot of special guys and you're one of them. 
It's Danny and Galan, 710 ESPN Seattle. We know who the Seattle Kraken are, at least the expansion draft. It is rounded out, and we're going to find out more about what the Kraken might do today. If they make any trades, we're not going to find out about the trades, allegedly, until 10 o'clock this morning. That's when the NHL lifts this embargo on any trades during the offseason. But this guy has been breaking so many things to the point where he arguably <laughs> ruined the expansion draft that he actually might know some of the things that the Seattle Kraken have planned in the near future. Frank Cervelli, a writer for the Daily Faceoff, the president of the National Hockey League Writers Association, he is going to join us to talk about what the Kraken did yesterday next. You are listening to Danny and Gallant on 710 ESPN Seattle. Now, here are your hosts, Danny O'Neill and Paul Gallant. we got some players to talk about now, including Brandon Tenev's fantastic reaction to his mugshot, which he described as he just saw a ghost before they snapped the picture of him. we got some colors to talk about, too. The away white jerseys look pretty sharp. And we got to find out where the Seattle Kraken fit into the big picture of the NFL. So we're bringing in someone much smarter than us. It's Frank Saravelli. He's a writer for the Daily Faceoff. He's also the president of the National Hockey Writers Association. Frank, thank you very much. And on behalf of Seattle, we're excited. We're excited to be part of the NHL and to learn. We're, we're excited to be able to, to learn from you guys. Frank's going to be with us here in just a <laughs> second. But the expansion draft went extremely well for the Kraken. I I think that some people wanted more, though. Look, they, they didn't do anything bold, and I think some people wanted bold. They wanted Carey Price. You want to have that big name. And while they did bring in a guy in Mark Giordano who is thought of very highly in Calgary, some of the headlines that are coming out after he left have been really, I think, interesting to see. Uh, one of the headlines that I saw... Flames dealt devastating blow at crucial time. Another, Flames lose moral compass and captain. So at the very least, you got a guy who maybe is your nucleus as far as a, a leader, but how talented are you realistically going to be based off of what you have right now? They, they didn't really seem to take any risks, and, and that's probably good for building at the beginning of your, te- of your tenure in the NHL, but a Kraken-esque expedition sooner rather than later, that's probably unlikely. The big picture... They drafted an awful lot of defensemen. They stayed away from the high-priced sort of injury questions that, that were there, and Carey Price specifically. They didn't spend as much, which I think I've seen as the biggest sort of sort of conversation. And then if, if the Las Vegas Golden Knights set out the template, if, if they set out the template for what to do and contend immediately as an expansion team, the Kraken didn't really follow that in terms of picking up draft picks for guys that either they didn't select or, or in, in, in other trades. The Kraken didn't make any, and Ron Francis said afterward, hey, that's because teams didn't want to make the same mistake twice. And I don't blame them, right? I mean, if, if Vegas is able to turn things into gold as quickly as they did... Do you then... think that's how it really works, though? Do you think all the other teams are like, oh, God, we were so stupid two years ago, nobody's going to do that this time around? Uh, I think sometimes it is that simple. I mean, maybe not every single team, but I would imagine there's a good amount that would think to themselves, man, if we don't play this right, then all of a sudden we could find ourselves not only seeing this team come out of nowhere and doing really well, but we might find ourselves in some of the deals that take place after the fact, potentially 
shooting ourselves in the foot and making a team like Seattle all of a sudden good right out of the shoot. You don't want that. Well, we, we do have Frank Saravelli to talk to us here. He is a writer for the Daily Faceoff. He's also the president of the National Hockey Writers Association. Frank, first of all, thanks a lot for taking the time to join us. Yeah, my pleasure, guys. Great to be with you. I would love to hear your reaction to the Kraken's draft. Well, I think the key word that comes to mind for me is flexibility. And this team has loads of it moving forward, not just on the trade front, but also on the free agent front. Um, I think there's a pretty clear process in place here. I think one of the first indications that we got with this team was that they're going to be difficult to play against when you bring in guys like Jamie Alexiak and Adam Larson on your back end. And I think there's room for growth. Um, Mason Appleton is a guy who's going to come in and, and be one of those guys that's a burgeoning star. You see the impact he had in Winnipeg last year. He's going to be one of those guys that takes a giant leap in his career. So um, there's room for growth. There's flexibility. And there's, you know, as much as, you know, Seattle has in terms of these initial players on their roster, uh, by, in a lot of ways, Ron Francis still has a blank canvas. Only seven guys after this season are locked up to a contract. So, um, you know, it's going to be really interesting to watch as this team develops and grows. They have a good amount of cap space to work with, and we'll see if they made any deals to potentially load up on draft capital at 10 o'clock Pacific time this morning. How much better can they make themselves from where they're at now for this season, Frank, I guess based off of some of the deals that might we, see, we might see happening over the next couple of hours and, of course, what they could potentially do in free agency? I'm curious to know if some teams, excuse me, some players would actually be willing to maybe sign with Seattle uh, veteran players, like really good veteran players, to potentially give this team a little bit more scoring options? Yeah, I'd be surprised if that isn't the case. Mm. Uh, in terms of flips um, and trades that come uh, after 10 a.m. Pacific, you know, I think the guy that jumps off the page is Tyler Pitlick. Uh, I think Seattle has something in place to send him to Calgary. Um, my guess is that would be in exchange for some draft capital. Um, you know, I think in, in another guy that I look at just in on the roster, I, I don't have anything other than a hunch, but Vince Dunn as a pending restricted free agent uh, that needs a contract. And you look at Mark Giordano, Jamie Alexiak, Adam Larson, and Carson Soucy, like that's a pretty stout top four. So Vince Dunn, where does he fit into that picture? I think teams were interested in him in St. Louis, but the price was pretty high. Um, what does it cost to potentially flip him? And then, you know, then you start to look at free agency in a week's time, July 28th, a little less than that, six days. Um, you know, I think they had some interesting traction and, and conversations where they made some players think. Um, a guy like Jaden Schwartz, for instance, from St. Louis, um, he's another guy that can produce goals for you, but they decided to go with Vince Dunn, more of a sure thing under team control. And, that gives Schwartz and the Kraken the opportunity to revisit things in six days and say, hey, we like the initial conversation we had. You know, should we continue down this path? And, and I think there's other guys in the same position. I, I'd be surprised if it would be a guy like Gabriel Landeskog just because the conversation did seem so short. Um, and then, you know, what happens elsewhere on the UFA front, you know, to fill out this team defensively? Do you look at 
a Dougie Hamilton? Do you look at an Alec Martinez? I think those are all things that, um, you know, on the free agent front uh, are really interesting for Seattle moving forward. We're talking to Frank Saravelli, who uh, writes for the Daily Faceoff. Frank, here in Seattle, we've looked at the Las Vegas Golden Knights in some ways as kind of an uh, inspiration or a possibility. Uh, of what what you can achieve in the in the NHL with an expansion franchise, but it does not seem like the Kraken in the in their expansion draft followed the model that had been set out by Las Vegas. Well, I don't think they had the capability to follow the model because everyone understood the model and the game plan and what it looked like. So, I mean, I thought the quote from Ron Francis last night after the draft was really interesting. You know, basically in him saying that. Uh, I think the exact quote was last time general managers were more willing to overpay to protect certain assets. And I think, you know, going back and reassessing and obviously with the benefit of history uh, or or 2020 vision at this point, knowing what took place, my question is, was the ask from the Kraken too high? Should Should they have readjusted expectations in terms of maybe not having teams overpay, but just pay to protect? And I think maybe that's where, you know, you, you, it leads itself to some interesting selections, some unexpected selections. And, you know, I, I think as they reassess and, and sort of go through the process again, you know, what would Ron Francis's, you know, revision be? Would he look at things a little bit differently in that sense? And, you know, probably a fair question to ask, but I don't, I don't think you can ever go wrong in, in having the flexibility that they have moving forward with, all that cap space and and so few long-term contracts that, you know, they're going to be pretty nimble, especially next season, for instance, at a time when the, the salary cap is going to remain flat again. A year from now is going to be the biggest cap crunch in NHL history. Mm. And there's only one team in the Seattle Kraken that are going to be uniquely positioned in order to take advantage of all mm. that. That's a great point to make. Frank, awesome. it's one of the many ways that we're going to trust that you can make us smarter over the coming year as we get geared up for for the inaugural season of the Seattle Kraken. We really appreciate you joining us this morning. Thanks, Frank. Hey, my pleasure, guys. Uh, Welcome to the Kraken, and glad to be talking to you guys in Seattle. That's very, very cool. It is Danny and Gallant, uh, our crash course on hockey education. You hear that, a blank canvas that's out there, and the Kraken uh, remain very, very nimble and, and able to maneuver. Paul's talked about the box that we put certain players in when it comes to their position in the NFL. Should we be doing that? We're going to ask Brock Heward that next, Blue 42.